Local Podcast, brought to you by Pile Style Events. I'm Dennis Junk. With me, as always, is my partner in crime, Alicia Pyle. Hi there. And today we're talking to Damon Mitchell. Hello. And he is a vocalist, guitarist. How do you describe yourself? <laughs> you actually play more than one instrument, don't you? Right. Jack of all trades, master of none is kind of what I go with, but... A primarily guitarist and vocalist. <laughs> At times, yeah. If need be. <laughs> if need be, whenever that arises. But and what's the name of your band? It's actually just Damon Mitchell. Damon Mitchell, all right. Yeah, so. and you, but you have other people playing in the band, obviously. Yeah, yeah. A lot of events. I, um, you know, I've, I've done some events with Alicia that have just been solo and or duo, but I do mm. the best I can to always have a full band. I saw you at the Jefferson Point Arts Fest. And yeah, it was a pile style thing. We were uh -huh. we got the sponsorships for that, and that was the first time when I was just like, "Man, this kid's really good." Oh my god, <laughs> where did he come from? I were you playing with Audie that. that day, weren't you? Yeah, I yeah. was playing with Audie Blaylock. Um, that was cool. I think he was kind of doing double duty that day with Carolyn Martin. That was fun. Yeah. So well, it was raining. There's a whole lot of <laughs> last minute schedule changes and equipment changes. It was it was fun. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> That's where the magic happens. Yeah. So you've got an album coming up. So I do. So tell us a little bit about it. Back in December of 2017, I decided to embark on my first solo record. For my whole life, I've been a part of a band or multiple bands, but never, never doing my own thing. And I always seemed to be the main songwriter for what I was a part of, but other people were singing my lyrics, I guess. And yeah. uh, it was actually Audie Blaylock who really uh, kind of drove the nail in the coffin on getting me to do something as a as a quote-unquote solo artist. I set out to do a solo record, uh, asked Dave Martin, uh, Carolyn Martin's husband, uh, to produce it. He's an award-winning producer and a phenomenal bassist. He plays bass on it. And I just assembled this, I would almost say, an all-star band. I mean, the record features, I think, something like 12 or 13 other musicians, you know, people from Bluegrass like Audie, Kenny Loggins, a drummer, Tris Inboden is on oh, it, wow. the dude who played on the song Footloose. Um, <laughs> no he's, way. Yeah, he's on it. My dad's on it. That's cool. What's uh, your dad play? He's playing keyboards on, okay. I think, three tracks. So That's awesome. Yeah, so there's, there's uh, I was talking about with Nick Bocott, who also is on it um, at one point. Nick Bocott. And, uh, <laughs> yes, from Grim Reaper. Um, it's interesting. I guess I think the thing I said to him was there's unity amongst players of all genres on this record. Because <laughs> I was just sitting with Nick thinking about like, but Audie Blaylock, who's a Grammy-nominated bluegrass artist, is also on the same record yeah. with Nick Bocott, who is Grim Reaper's guitar player, <laughs> you know, metal shredder. So you, you know. would characterize your own style as eclectic. How would, I, or how would you? I guess I could <laughs> form that into a question. Better. That might just describe me. Um, <laughs> no, a friend of mine is a photojournalist, and he, he heard us play live once, and he said, you guys sound like the Beatles meets Death Cab for Cutie. Which That's I an interesting. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Which I, those, ironically, those are my two absolute favorite bands. Well, then he uh, was like, hit the, the nail on the head. Ever. Yeah. But it's also a kiss of death. Anytime someone's like, you're like the Beatles. Like, yeah. Typically, that just about runs your career right there. Well, <laughs> as somebody who tries to write descriptions of this stuff all the time, you know people kind of like and also chafe at no matter who you compare them to. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, it's yeah. a little bit of this mixed with a little bit of this. And they're just like, oh, I don't like that. Why do you have to characterize me? Why can't you just let people? It's like, well, they haven't heard you yet. Right. I like it if people characterize me as long as it's somebody good. <laughs> <laughs> right. Diana Krall meets Tchaikovsky. Or right. <laughs> oh, man. So That's you come really from cool. a musical family, obviously, if your dad's I do. Keyboard. Yeah, so when I was born... <laughs> 
my family was going on the road 45 weekends out of the year. They were doing the weekend warrior thing, wow. kind of here in the Midwest, tri-state, Ohio, Indiana, Illinois area, and mm-hmm. a little bit of Kentucky and Missouri. And my dad was, I think, what would be referred to as the band leader. Mm-hmm. Um, it was Southern gospel music, so like quartet style. When I was born, my mom quit going so she could take care of me. Um, and you broke up the band. I broke up the band. <laughs> you broke up the band. <laughs> it actually just became just my grandfather and grandmother and and my dad. And they were using tracks, which my dad made. And then he played keyboards live. And you know they just sang parts. And so I grew up watching that. About five years old, they started letting me go during the summer. And uh, when I hit 10, they told me I could go. Because they primarily did Sunday nights. It was churches. So sure. Sunday night events. And they'd travel three or four hours away, and they didn't want me out on a school night. But when I was about 10, they're like, well, if you can take a nap in the back of the van, like, <laughs> you, can, you, can hang. you can go. And that was so cool, you know? I forget the name of the episode there, Napping in the Back of the Van. Napping in the Back of the Van. There's been a lot of those. But it really taught me a lot. I mean, just setting up equipment and tearing down. And I think the biggest thing it taught me was how to interact with people on and off stage. Uh, my grandmother was superb at that. Uh, she was one of the best frontmen I've I've actually ever seen. I think that's where I picked up a lot of uh, engagement stylings from. I think that's interesting because uh, I'm writing a lot about <coughs> marketing and, and music, and it seems like that's where a lot of musicians and artists yeah. in general go wrong, is and they think that they're going to crack the code and have this perfect sound or this perfect song or whatever, and then it's going to spread like wildfire. And instead, it kind of, it actually gains momentum handshake by handshake and exactly. one interaction by interaction and you kind of build it up then it, it'll get its own momentum eventually but it has to start with those you, like in-person relationships you're absolutely right what was it i think carolyn martin said something to me i'm gonna butcher the quote it was either carolyn or Dave, but they said something like you know we play songs one at a time and we make fans one at a time yeah oh that's and, really cool you know, i'm gonna steal that and <laughs> and uh that's just what you have to do it, it's organic i i feel like especially in the age of accessibility with social media people think they're gonna Mm -hmm. throw enough money into the marketing machine or something and and that certainly helps but there there is no like you said there is i don't at least i'm not seeing it there's no one code that just wins Mm -hmm. (laughs) so i'm dying right now because i'm thinking about the nine times last year you came up and you're like hi i'm damon mitchell hi how are you doing today i'm damon mitchell Hey, how are you? I, I'm David Mitchell. And I'm like, oh my God, I'm going to kill you. I said you. one handshake at a time. Sometimes oh man, I got like 10. 10 it's, it's branding. No, I was, I'm just teasing you. I, I just love that. It's, you, know, you always have a smile on your face. It's just something I noticed about you here. And whenever I'm interacting with you and, you know, if it's at a, a gig or a show or just, you know, around the scene and stuff, you're always smiling. You always seem like you're enjoying what you're doing. And you have a lot of stories too, which just makes these podcast interviews like <laughs> so awesome. And I was so excited to have you come, but why are you so happy all the time? I'd love to know <laughs> oh, that. What's yeah. your, what's your, uh, what's your recipe? Well, it's a privilege to, to play music and be creative. And I think it's fascinating that we, and this isn't a big patriotic rant or anything, but just I think it's fascinating that we live in a time that we're free to do that, kind of as, yeah. we, as we want to express the ideas that we have. I'm also, and this, this is something else I've talked about with Bocat, and it gets kind of out in the weeds, but as someone who's spiritual, I think that music uh, potentially has a power beyond our realm. Oh, yeah. Um, and... I think, once again, what a privilege it is that we have access to that in, in this life. 
And it's something that I think transcends language, too. It's like a universal language, not to be cliche. but So I just get excited anytime I'm in a room playing music for people and with other musicians. And in my band, I've, I've started working with a lot of people that, quite frankly, are older than me and have been doing this two to three times as long. And I learn something new every time. So all those pieces together, the whole universal language, just the freedom to do it, and the idea that I'm learning something new every time, whether it be musically or just hearing, you know, stories that they have, road stories, I'm I'm just thrilled to be in the middle of it. Oh, Charles, so. that's neat. That's cool. <laughs> you got to follow your parents around, you said. And yeah. How did you individually get into it? Did you just pick up a guitar one day and start saying, <laughs> let's see how this thing works? Ironically, um, Tommy, they made you take piano lessons at some point. They did. Good. Okay. So, so this is kind of uh, I'll I'll follow that. When I was two, I have this I have this thing that I tell people. My dad changed my life when I was about two years old, and I think this is my earliest memory. I I am sure that I was two years old, probably coming close to three. So this would have been about 1998, and my dad put in a VHS of. Before I even say who it was, I'll say the only concept I have of music as a two-year-old was what my parents were playing in church. So it was it was Southern gospel church music, which is very harmony-driven and piano-driven. So my dad puts in a VHS of Chicago playing live at the Greek Theater from 1993, and Tris Imboden was playing drums on that video. He was with Chicago from 1990 to 2018. He's the guy that plays on the song that I mentioned that I, I got to record. Um, he's oh, with wow. Kenny Loggins. He was yeah. that guy, too. And I was just blown away at this. You know, I, I think it was just two-year-old boy, two, three-year-old boys watching some dude hit these big round things and and they make noise and cymbals and i i mean i you go right to the pots and pans right and And that's what i did is i i grabbed pots and pans and had my dad just play that tape over and over again (laughs) and he loves chicago and uh, so he didn't care and he's told me in hindsight like he he actually watched me and it was kind of like a test he was trying to see he was trying to gauge my desire for music at that young of an age like is he into it is he not will it show now will it show later and I instantly wanted to be in Chicago. <laughs> you yeah. know? Um, I still would like to be in Chicago. <laughs> um, but I grabbed the pots and pans, like you said, and my parents, my dad being a keyboardist, about the time I was five, I was like, I want to play drums. And they're like, well, you need to play piano first. And my mom tells a story that I was six and I went to my first piano lesson. And I came home and I was like, well, I've taken piano now. Can I play, Can I play the drums? <laughs> <You know? laughs> it's something to beat on. Oh, man, so, that's great. Um, I ended up taking nine years of piano lessons. Uh, I do play drums, but I kind of lost that specific drive. And then to answer the question how I got in to, to my own music uh, apart from the family band, this is so funny. I, I mentioned, you know, 98, I was two. But I have this answer to that that kind of sounds like I was born in 1965. Uh, <laughs> Kiss is the answer to that. <laughs> oh, wow. I had this fascination. I picked up bass when I was in third grade, and I, I kept playing. In about seventh grade, I just wanted to check out other bass players that I felt like I should know. Yeah. And Gene Simmons was, I, I just knew that name. Yeah, who so does <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm a musician. Talk right? about I branding and marketing. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But I just started watching Gene play, and something about them and their show, I mean, it, it's bombastic. It, yeah. it is the ultimate rock show, and something about that just grabbed me deep inside, and I wanted to, to be that. 
so I started my own worship band, which is which is not Kiss, <laughs> but <Yeah. laughs> but that was the closest like avenue I had to that. Were kids at church that played, and the guys that were up for doing it had only been playing guitar about six months, and so I saved up enough money mowing lawns and thought, well, I'll learn guitar alongside them so I can better speak their language, even though I'm I'm the bass player. Yeah, and I bought it, and between my bass and my piano backing. Playing guitar just came really naturally. Scales came naturally, and, and soon enough, I was doing lead lines. And you're happy your mom made you take those lessons. After yeah, <laughs> I was really happy. So that's really neat. That's cool. Yeah. What's your favorite instrument now of all of them? Do you have? Yeah, I'm sure it changes from time to time, but I write a lot at the piano. But overall, I think guitar is. I feel like I'm having a conversation when I'm playing it. What are you playing right now? What kind of guitar? Oh gosh. Tell us about I've, your baby. I've got. I've got. <laughs> Last I counted, I think I have 17 of them. What's your favorite? You got to have one um, or two favorites in there. Uh, I'll I'll pick two for the sake of time, I guess. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's like I'd be happy it's to talk about story, all of them. Each one of them. It's like swords in the Middle Ages. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> um, so the one that I use the most on the record and the most live is my. Uh, it's a 2017 Gibson Les Paul Classic T. And it's green. Ooh. And it's this beautiful, I think they called it Green Ocean Burst. I think and I've seen pictures of this. Yeah, there. yeah. Didn't you take a really neat picture on a couch with that? Yes. Yeah, it was the yeah. one. And it's in the music video. And thank you. You'll have to send that to um, us. I'll use the picture. <clears throat> oh, yeah. <laughs> I'll link to the video, too, of it, course. It was funny because what got me into green guitars was Keith Howland from the band Chicago. Uh, he's become a friend of mine, and he almost all of his guitars that he, he plays for Chicago are green. And when I started playing guitar, he was like my guitar hero. Not that guitar hero. <laughs> right, 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 right. <laughs> a Not, real guitar hero. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Ironically, I recently got to play with him, and he uses kind of Fender-style guitars that are made by Anderson primarily, and I brought this Green Les Paul. It was actually at his house in Nashville, and we went and played together, and we played like 25 or 64, and I'm a man, and dialogue and stuff like that. The Chicago hits together. He was like, oh, you have the Green Les Paul, man, and I saw him three months later with Chicago. And the dude has a freaking green Les Paul. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he, it's so cool. He comes up to me afterwards. He's like, what do you think of the new guitar, man? It's like, wonder where you got that idea. But, <laughs> but Gibson gave him his. They didn't give me mine. Like, oh, man. <laughs> pay for it. Yeah. So, I just bought a Les Paul ukulele at Christmas. Really? Oh, oh it's gosh. a lot of fun. Yeah. Wow. It's, it's really neat. I'm like, this is a ukulele. Yes, sign me up. That's incredible. It's red sunburst. It's an incredible instrument. It wasn't that expensive either. I mean, I just... And it's like a Les Paul shape? It's a Les Paul shape. It's an Epiphone. Yeah, it's just cool. Wow. Annoying <laughs> to us non-musicians who never crossed that barrier to entry into music. We're being geeky now. I'm we sorry. We're being geeky. Let's get back on well, track. I'll, well, I leave the room when she has a new ukulele, and I come back, and she's playing songs, and I'm like, how did you how learn did you that? that? <laughs> it's a language. And, yeah, and it, easy. it cross-pollinates. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to learn guitar this year. I'm going to be a lot harder than you, but... Oh, it's... It's all the same. <laughs> it's just, it's but, crazy once you learn one instrument how easy it is to switch. Yeah. I'm like, why did I wait 20 years to switch instruments? Right. Like right. to tr- learn a new instrument. I mean, I, I'm telling all my kids, like, yeah, go learn all the instruments. The Practice piano your piano skills. Makes sense but now. go learn all of them now. You know, like go go pick up three more. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's, it's fun. Just variety. To, to finish the answer, though, my second favorite, uh, and I don't say second as in like 
you know, it's behind it. I inherited my grandfather's 1967 Rickenbacker 12-string. Oh, wow. Which, it's an electric guitar, and it was a big innovation at the time that Rickenbacker made them because the headstocks were twice as long, almost, on 12-string guitars because there were more strings. And Rickenbacker got the idea uh, to put the extra six tuning pegs on the backside of the headstock so it didn't take up any more room. Yeah, and then in February of 1964, when the Beatles came to America, I think the last name of the CEO for Rickenbacker at the time was Hall. I think it was like C. Hall is what he went by. Could be wrong. But he met with the Beatles the night before they played the Ed Sullivan show and gave them all Rickenbackers. Um, and the only ones That's who didn't. I know that name. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, of course, Ringo wasn't part of that. But, but he gave George, John, and Paul Rickenbackers, and George used the 36012 string. I forget what John ended up with. But ironically, Paul, the Rickenbacker that he got, didn't get featured until 67 in Sgt. Pepper's. But he owned it that whole time, but he was primarily using the Hofner. But anyway, I, I love Rickenbacker, Rickenbacker, whatever you want to call the company, depending on how you pronounce it. But my grandfather has one, and I have one built for me that's left-handed. I, I'm, I'm left-handed, so I have to have guitars specially made. But I ordered one from the company, and they specifically made one on a lefty that matched my grandfather's. He saw it before he passed, and we got a picture together of our kind of bookend really cool. guitars. And uh, then when he passed away, uh, he had told my family, and he told me, he's like, you know, when I'm when I'm gone, you get the guitar, which I would much rather have my grandfather, but he also lived a very nice, long 93-year-old life. Oh, cool. So, oh, that's wonderful. Yeah, yeah. So um, with that being said, too, it felt like there was a lot of history in the guitar. In fact, I, I have the check that he wrote for it. Oh, wow. Yeah. How did you manage that? They used to send your checks back to you. Uh, after like a month, once it cleared, you know, you got it back in the mail. And so it's kind of a receipt, but right. that's cool. When they moved him into a nursing home, he struggled with dementia. Uh, my grandmother had passed the year before he did, so there was kind of a year gap of moving him elsewhere. And him living there, in that time, they were cleaning out the house, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, they found the check that he wrote for it. That's and crazy. So that's with the guitar now. Oh, was, that's neat. Yeah. What a fun story. He bought it from his next door neighbor for three hundred dollars. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Was Ringo yeah. Star. No. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> right. Oh, he gosh. wasn't going to use it. I've been um I've been combing into my family's car stereo history, nerding out. I have this oh, big awesome. surprise gift for my um my father and my uncle, who have both been helping me out with some things this year and, and helping me move into are you going to say what it is right here on well, the podcast? Well, I can't because I haven't <laughs> given it to them yet. Right. But I can say that my my grandpa started a company. It was called Pile Car Stereo, which had a lot of traction. Like any guy over 40 that you talked to probably had a pair of pile subs in his trunk. Oh, wow. But what I didn't really get very much history from was my great-grandpa, who had, had started a company called Utah Radio. Um, and they would kind of mention things here and there. But my dad and all his brothers always talked about the company they worked for, mm-hmm. the one that was in Huntington, Indiana, and pile, 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 pile. And I just found all this really interesting information and stuff out That's about incredible. Utah radio. And like the, just the fact that my grandpa, great-grandpa was making speakers almost 100 years ago, you know, and they were being used in the wow. war. I, I'll share some of this wow. stuff with you. I'm going to have Dennis write a piece on it but when I give them the Please. gifts. But it was just like, whoa, how is this stuff even being done that long ago? Obviously it was, you know, there were people innovating and and doing this stuff then. But I love the history that you just shared because we've been nerding out on history on our end too. And it's just cool. It's really neat. I'm a big believer in this kind of... family people too over here, so... Yeah, I'm a big believer, kind of a saying that I've 
I've started implementing is cars are meant to go forward, but they do have a rear view mirror for a reason. You've got to you got to be able to look back and look behind you. And I, I think it's so incredible when you can tie that to your own family. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. It's really neat. Yeah. Sometimes you have to put it in reverse before you can go forward. <laughs> <laughs> yes. You're absolutely right. So you uh, you worked on this project. You're releasing it, and you have a big party coming up Saturday. Yeah, this Saturday, March 2nd. And we have to apologize because we, we wanted to get this podcast out earlier, but oh. it was a polar vortex, so we canceled it on Damon twice. <laughs> so that, that was right up against the wire. This will probably go out the day before the release party. Oh, it's, it's so completely the, fine. I'm just honored to be here and be a part of this and be teaming up with you guys and how active you are in the musical community here. I've been here two years, and almost instantly when you try to figure out how to get in, to music here, your name comes up. And Aww, so it's an honor cool. to work with you now on, on multiple events and on this. And But yeah, Elise is the name of the record. It's also the, uh, um, it's a title track. There's been a music video through Vivo come out about it and we are doing the release Elise party or experience is kind of what we're calling it. Is the video <clears> something I can embed on the website? Is it out already? Absolutely, All right, it great. is. It I'll came out that. on January 4th. It was kind of like the leading single. Mm-hmm. And then I just put out a new one um, two weeks ago called License Plate. Okay, great. Um, but those are all part of the Elise record. It's a six-song EP, so there are four tracks that we've not heard yet. Oh, <laughs> that's exciting. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. I bet Dave has to be excited, too. So it was he, you were working with him on this. Yeah, Dave okay. produced this record. He cut bass on all the tracks as well. He sat with me for hours and hours in the studio. Every every piece of tracking except for the guest musicians that tracked elsewhere, like Nashville and L.A., they just emailed their parts in. But for the rest of it, Dave and I are the two guys that were there for the whole thing. And I saw many a picture on social media with you two, and I was like, oh, that's really endearing. I can't wait to yeah. hear what they did. I, I, <laughs> I have started calling him Uncle Dave. Uncle Dave, and, yeah. And... Uh, I'm playing That's, with him tomorrow. He's so. very avuncular. So that, that <laughs> yeah, actually Thursday. works. Yeah, yeah. He's Uncle Dave. He is so incredible to work with, and he's one of those guys that has just worked with everybody and been a part of everything. That song I mentioned called "License Plate," the second single that features Audi Blaylock and Brian Arrowwood from Travis Tritt's band, uh, which those two will actually be joining me at, at the release party oh, on stage. Uh, there's a harmonica player in it who is maybe one of the most historic musicians living in my opinion uh, his name is Charlie McCoy and I believe he's played on over 10,000 recordings including the Bridge Over Troubled Waters album oh, by wow. Simon and Garfunkel he was on Blonde on Blonde by Bob Dylan I made a joke in the studio one night when we were kind of laying down the the basic tracks for license plate I said a harmonica would good you know would go well on this and Dave was kind of like oh yeah, yeah, yeah you know and I, I said well, we just need Charlie McCoy and, and Dave was like, well, I know him. Like, I bet we could get him. <laughs> <laughs> like, what? And we did. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> so, oh my gosh. I, I went down to the Opry in May. Charlie tracked the song in Nashville on a Monday in May. And I was at the Opry uh, the Friday or the Saturday night before. And he was playing on the Opry. And so he had me backstage with him, hearing him talk about like time with recording with Dylan or things like that. It was just surreal. Do you ever, um, I don't know how, because you're young, but how um, how much you've played with other people. But this is a musician question for you. And I'll ask this from everyone, but just from this conversation you've had here, I'm curious. <coughs> Do you ever notice that um, the more and the, the more diverse and amounts of different people that you work with, do you ever see like completely different pieces and sides of you as a musician? Do you ever discover mm-hmm. like new things about yourself the more you work with different people? Yeah, 
Absolutely. Isn't that, does that weird you out sometimes? You're like, man, I didn't know I was even good at this, or I, I didn't even know I would like doing that. Do you ever have you experienced that some? The more like the more, and I know some of the tracking happened other places, but in your collaborations locally or not locally, do you ever see that? Like, is that something you experience? Yeah, I'm. I'm trying to think how to like eloquently word that. It totally uh, weirds me out, and you know, my my projects were kind of big, so I stuck with kind of the people I wanted to work with, and I didn't branch out for a reason. I kind of did what I was doing because I wanted to do it well. But in the last few years, or last several years, um, you know, five or five or six years, more I just noticed more people I work with. <laughs> it's just really strange. Like you see different sides of yourself and different pieces Absolutely. of your musical personality, and I I think a lot of the you know, guys and girls that I've been fortunate enough to work with have been, maybe they don't even realize it, but they kind of have that teacher mentality, um, especially those that are, I don't want to like put a limit on something, but the guys, like I said, guys and girls that are like 50 and up. Yeah. I think they have some innate drive, especially those who really love the craft to just pass on what they know. And I think they have somehow kind of realized who I am you know they get an objective view of me which is great you know <laughs> because you I, I always think you know you yourself kind of are the painting and you're standing way too close to the painting so you don't really see the full picture sometimes mm-hmm. but those that get that 10,000 foot view of you do and I think people like that that have that love for the craft and that teacher mentality have a way of kind of pulling something out of you at points that you didn't realize you had in you the whole time and it may not be a performance it may be an emotion or or kind of a thought process or whatever and and I certainly know a uh, new facet of your creativity yeah, yeah exactly I certainly know Dave and Carolyn Martin have done that for me multiple times and Audie Blaylock uh, I've spent so many hours sitting at the at the feet of that guy just trying to pick up everything I can from him and I think he's really come at his almost mentoring me <laughs> way in a in a very teacher method I don't know how much of that's intentional and how much is just natural. But yeah, it really has brought out kind of different sides of me that I'm not sure I consciously knew I had. I bet now, though, as you get ready to release this project, you can kind of reflect on some of that, though. That's got to be like a fun minute here for you. Yeah. This minute in your life or this moment. Like, I just made this wonderful, you know, I completed this project. I'm proud of it. And you can reflect on the relationships you made with it and what you've learned. That's yes. really fun. I'm... Can you put into words what that is? It's hard, you know? Well, I'm at to kind of like two points uh, in a road, and they're kind of two very disparate points. And one point is I have heard these songs so many times. (laughs) (laughs) I get you. On the other hand, I go back and I listen to the songs every now and then. I listen to the players that are on them. And I mentioned earlier that music is like this universal language of emotion and expression. I think a lot of those guys that have been around a long time they're good at telling stories through their instrument. And sometimes those stories, even though maybe what I'm singing about is fictitious, they're kind of they're kind of maybe channeling an emotion from a real thing that happened to them in their their life or their career and they're kind of just putting that accordingly in the composition of of the song. And so it's interesting to hear someone like Charlie McCoy who was in his 70s who's been on historic recordings play or hear what Dave does or hear what Audie has to say per se you know via guitar and I kind of go back and listen to what they're doing on the record even though I've heard it a million times there are times where I hear something new in it um, or hear something in a different light and I kind of just forget that I'm listening to me because at that point I'm not listening to I'm not listening to me I'm listening to them sure 
Mm-hmm. It just happens to be a track. Select that your I parent. Wrote. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> musician's version. Right. Oh, that's so cool. I'm so happy for you. It's I hope a, any of that made sense. It does, and <laughs> I was just trying to make you verbalize it for our non-musical listeners because well, I would chime in for that and just say that's kind of what art does, and that's what makes it so great. Yes. I mean, I'm, yeah. I don't make music, but when I appreciate it, it's that it's it's really similar to when you see a painting or when you read a story or when you see a great film. That's it, like you guys are saying, it opens the door to a new spot in your brain you didn't even, there's like, like a new room in the yeah. house that you didn't even know was there. And it's like, wow, what's in here? <laughs> you know? Yes. And you can, you start exploring <laughs> it and you can develop that way. And it's really interesting. I'm just sitting here thinking we haven't talked about your lyrics yet. And we keep talking oh, about gosh. storytelling and everything. So yeah. t- tell us about the lyrics and how that, how you come about them or oh, what, what your, <clears throat> what your process is. I'm a big believer in not overthinking. And just trying to kind of let things uh, come to you. I, I saw this great video. It was a documentary on YouTube, and Bono is out on a boat with The Edge, you know, their guitar mm-hmm. player. And I think the rest of the band's out there. It's it's like video from the 80s. And The Edge was just, you know, sitting and riffing away on some acoustic guitar. And they're trying to co write. And Bono's just yelling out these words. He's got a melody, but he's just yelling out words that don't make any sense. And he just said, sometimes that's that's the way I'm kind of paraphrasing. Like, yeah. That's kind of the way I. I find stuff eventually. I just say a phrase that sticks. Throw it against the wall. Throw it against the wall. Macaroni. Right, right. (laughs) I like to think I'm a little more methodical. For me, writing, music and lyrics come together almost at the exact same time. And if I can't finish a song within an hour, I rarely revisit it. Um, That's interesting. I just kind of let it go. You kind of know if it has a life of its own. Yeah. Really early on. Yeah. Because if it doesn't, there's there's no point in pursuing it right I mean, that is like polar opposite of what my composition teacher taught me in school i like your version better <laughs> i was told like well i mean and obviously every teacher is going to teach you different things but one yes. of my composition teachers at um in college was like you know you gotta come up with an idea and then massage it and then you massage it some more and you massage it some more and i'm telling you what there were some ideas that like i just threw out <laughs> i massaged them a few times i'm like this is not going anywhere I, but, you know, I like your version. It sounds much more refreshing and enjoyable, a writing process. It feels like a mystery each time. I am a big fan of Jackson Pollock, the artist. Mm-hmm. And I think that guy is... Speaking of throwing stuff at the wall. <laughs> yeah, he literally did. And it's this weird paradox of was it the most chaotic thing or was it the most intentional thing? Yeah. And sometimes I feel that way with songwriting. The, the lead song on the record, the, the first track, I always feel weird saying my lyrics without music playing behind them. But I was sitting at a piano on some, some weekday. It was before I lived in Fort Wayne. And my dad and I had just gone to lunch together. I don't even really know what led up to me thinking this song up. But I just came home and had some time alone with sitting at a piano and just started playing around with this chord progression. I was just trying to find a melody and just kind of humming things. And all of a sudden, like, just playing this chord progression and singing this melody without really thinking, I said the lines, I, I sang the lines. I saw you there, I saw you wave them in, the suit and tie and your cardigan, your matching ties were the perfect disguise for your heist. And the song ended up taking shape within about 45 minutes, like in full form. But I didn't know like where I was going from those lyrics. I just had them and I wrote them down my phone really quick. And the song ended up being about falling in love with someone you watch commit a federal offense. <laughs> that's awesome. But, but, <laughs> oh, that's so cool. But, Which is incidental. Never mind. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> oh, that's so cool. Um, so sometimes I wonder where that all comes from. 
does that really come from inside your subconscious? Like, I think Pollock may have tried to argue a few times. Mm -hmm. Do you very intentionally write it? Is it something that you channel that's way beyond you, maybe beyond this realm? I, I have no idea. You can get way ethereal with it. Mm -hmm. Sure. Oh, yeah. yeah. Art so, is so subjective and just where it comes from and how we form yeah. these things. And Where are you from know. originally? You said you weren't from Fort Wayne. Southern Illinois, a little town called Robinson. If you've ever had a Heath candy bar, that is the only I place they're made. Bar. Oh, that's yeah. so cool. Especially Heath blizzards. Yeah, yeah Butterfinger exactly. Heath blizzards. you got to <laughs> oh, have both. Wow. Oh. So when did you come to Fort Wayne? I moved here. Well, I started recording here with Mark Hornsby and okay, his yeah. team in 2015. I was 19. And if you guys know Mark, he's a bit intimidating to, to most people, let alone a 19-year-old. Mark cut uh, our first record. Yeah. Yeah, for he's, ABQ. He's very good at what he does, and that's part of why he's so intimidating. Mm -hmm. I remember that intensity. <laughs> I, I remember the first thing he asked me was, uh, do you need an orchestra? <laughs> oh, that's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> do you have one sitting around? <laughs> right. Oh, man. So what that, that leads into my my last question. We're coming up on time here, but what uh, what are your thoughts? Always, yes, duh. I, mean, Sorry. I want one when I'm just sitting at home watching. Well, if I'm watching TV, I don't want. Have an orchestra. Right. What do you think of the Fort Wayne music scene in general, and how do you, how do you see yourself and your band fitting into it? Oh gosh, I. Overall, I love it. I come from a town where there there is nothing. There's a community theater and there are churches. And there are a few guys that get together to put to, together a metal and screamo show once a year. Mm -hmm. And I don't fit into really any of that. So coming here, and there's only like 6,000 people where I come from. Sure. Um, I would say about 5,983 <laughs> of them are not interested in seeing live music. So yeah. <laughs> um, coming here... It was it was mind blowing to see all the different venues, you know, like what you're doing, Alicia, with with event organizing. That was an accident, by the way. Yeah, the best things are. I, I know. It's <laughs> <laughs> like that lyric. That we just kept making friends, and then like, these right. friends want to make music, yeah. and then they want to make it's, a little money. And well, I yeah, think we're just a community. I think now. what you just said, yep, yeah, you just nailed it right on the head. What I was about to say is, it does seem like a community, and once you know one person, you start getting introduced to everybody. You find where you fit, then. Yeah, this is my goal. I do feel like what I'm kind of interested to see play out over the next few years is there there is a bit of a separation. And I don't mean this in a negative way. It seems that there are bands that, uh, I'm just going to throw out two venues. I don't specifically mean these venues I get you. only. But Hypothetically. You've got bands that play the brass rail, and then you've got bands that play like C2G. I'm interested to see those things collide, because I think they have different demographics, almost even in like age range that kind of follow them around. I think their support groups are very different. Yes, and <laughs> yeah. it would be very interesting mm. to see even someone, a girl that comes to mind instantly is Hallie Nowak, uh, who is a great local poet who does a lot of uh, open mic night readings or has done stuff at like Crimson Night or what used to be CS3, which is now I think Welsh's Ale House. Mm -hmm. It would be very, I think her stuff is great. And I think it would go over very well with that kind of other crowd. But I also think what happens in that crowd would also go over really well with, with things that happen in the Brass Rail, uh, Welsh's Ale House crowd. Do you ever think people I'm, just get comfy, though? I do. That's what I've noticed, because I, I love everybody, and so many of the people I love are so different. And mm -hmm. they all have, like, their little pocket, and their friends in that pocket, and their band people they play with in that pocket. And well, we as people seem to get comfortable yeah. doing one thing. Your comfort I, zone, yeah. yeah. I go see Carolyn Martin play almost every Wednesday at Don Hall's Guest House. 
and she plays three hours of Western swing music, which is great, which takes a lot of talent. And Dave plays with her, which I would argue is one of the best bass players in the country. Carolyn's twice Grammy nominated. And there are times where it's packed and there are times where there's, you know, a small loving crowd that's very cozy. But I just think if if people would put themselves out of their comfort zone, this place, you couldn't find a seat in it. If if people really discovered like the amount of talent mm-hmm. and great music that's happening right there. And I feel like that's just indicative of of almost every local show I've gone to. It's like there's a built in crowd that you know kind of follows that band, but they don't want to go see that other band. You know, or they don't want to go to that venue. They don't, it's like the musicians I, I don't know get what, siloed somehow, or the audiences yeah, get siloed somehow. I don't know why that is. Uh, well, that, I, last time I went to the Brass Barrel, it smelled like pee. That's my only excuse for not <laughs> wanting to go back sometimes, but just being honest. Okay. Love the brass. Love me some Brass Barrel when it doesn't smell like pee. I don't know how candid we were getting. <laughs> but, <laughs> well, no. Some people like going to hear live music at a bar that smells like pee. I get it. It's they very want that authentic. 75 cent PBR. <laughs> oh, you know, people really like their what they like, though, and they, they can get kind of their head wrapped in that. I like this, and yeah, I want this drink in my, you know, my eight dollar salad at whatever at Halls. Yeah, you know, yeah. like, and someone that's over sixty is going to get that eight dollar salad every freaking Wednesday. Yeah, <laughs> you but know I think what I mean? Part of that is, what do you have time for? Can you find the stuff that you like? And, and you narrow in on it. Yeah, you keep doing it, and there's a certain yeah. point in your life where you're so busy that you're not yeah, looking that, for new that stuff is to check very out. Very true. Which is a little bit sad. This is something Matt Kelly was telling us about too. He runs the B side, and he's he's in the train hoppers. Oh, that's a great venue. Um, and he was saying that I asked him about the the same question I asked you about the scene, and he he said he'd wish that he could like crank up the adventurousness dial a little bit for the people here. That's what the one that's thing he would change. That's a great way to put that. And I was like, yeah, because it's it's hard to. You know, you've got something somebody might enjoy, but it's hard to get them out of their comfort zone or get them out of their routines and get out to a show. And it's it's almost sad because, you know, in so many ways, everybody has FOMO when they're on yeah. Facebook oh, no, no, or something. But right. it's like there's great stuff happening in the real world that people should be worried well, about missing out on. I'm a big believer that art should make you question and to some degree it should make you uncomfortable. But I think in that there's a lot of growth to be had. Um, that's really cool. So that's kind of my mission with, uh, you talked about lyrics. Uh, mm-hmm. Now there are the fun lyrics that we just discussed about, you know, falling in love with someone that you watched rob a bank, but I, I hope that something in my record will make people question things and, and be adventurous. And I really hope on a larger scale that all communities and uh, or all these kind of subset communities in these very artsy towns will, will become more adventurous and we'll go see the artists because I think there's a lot of growth to be had there as both givers and receivers of, of art. Great. We can all celebrate it together. and Support local <laughs> music. Absolutely. That's what we want people to do. So did we miss anything that you wanted to talk about? No. Thank you guys for doing what you're doing to, to be adventurous in the art scene and, and kind of lead, lead people into to new places. And, and what and time can they come ones. to your show? Because we want people to come to see you this Saturday. All right. So, so here's the thing. I mentioned earlier it's an experience. Oh, okay. Uh, it's the Elise experience. And it's it's a good idea to have watched the music video before you get there because lots of things will be red. I actually would probably recommend even wearing red if you want. Uh, the music video is very red. Um, I'm, I'm trying to go for guitar. Taylor Swift with, <laughs> with red. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah, yeah, with the green guitar, too. Yeah. No, but there's going to be like a themed drink there. There's going to be gift bags that are themed. The first 50 people to arrive are going to get a special gift that obviously has a lot to do with the record. There's going to be a selfie wall with props that correspond with the music video. Uh, there's going to be time to kind of meet the band and, and just get to ask questions. Allison Rysak, who did the music video, 
for Elise is going to be there screening the music video. And so I recommend being there at 7 p.m. to take part. And, oh, and Julian Meek is hosting. Oh, cool. great. So, uh, from, from WBOY. So that all starts at 7. The show itself starts at 8 o'clock. And, and where is it? Did we get there? Yeah, <laughs> tickets are available at the door at C2G, C2G. Music okay. Hall. Excellent. Excellent. I kind of yeah. want to go. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I hope to have you guys out. There's a Wonderful. selfie wall. Selfie wall. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and really? the, I, I hate to, to spoil the surprise, but there is going to be a geo filter through ChapSnat or Snapchat or whatever people call it. Oh, okay. That one yeah. app. I don't use it, but... Uh, my social media team. I work with a girl who handles my social media. And That's she, smart. She <laughs> She's like, I don't use it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. You can get lost in there. It's yeah, a, it's a rabbit hole. She did one of those geo filters that apparently you take a. So do you know? Yourself. I was going to ask you. What, do you have a website? Do you have social media that people yeah. can go to? Do you yes. know what all? <laughs> so at the Damon Mitchell is the handle for Instagram, and the Damon Mitchell is the URL for Facebook. And then underscore Damon Mitchell is Twitter. And then um, as for website, I'm with Jefferson Street Entertainment Booking Agency. So JeffersonStreetEntertainment.com is kind of my home base as far as the website. Okay, good deal. Excellent. That's cool. On there. Yeah. All right. Thanks, everyone, for listening. You can find us on iTunes and Stitcher if you didn't already know. Or you can just write your email in the box below the blog post here where you found the, the podcast episode. We'll see you next time. Thanks.